Lord, now as we open your word, we thank you that even though the grass might wither and the flower fades, a word of God shall stand forever. It is permanent. And it's because it is permanent, it is a secure place for us to rest our hearts. Thank you, Father, that the word is relevant, that it's preeminent, and that it has a great purpose. And Father, since it is so secure, what greater way for us to expend our lives than to study it and to um, get to know you better through it. Thank you, Father, for all that you're going to teach us this morning through your Holy Spirit using the word to, uh, to uh, convict us and to apply to our lives. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Each succeeding section of the Lord's great sermon, Sermon on the Mount, flows naturally from the one before it. This general outline, by the way, is in the very beginning of your books. We saw how each of the eight Beatitudes regarding the characteristics of kingdom citizens logically and sequentially followed the one preceding it in the first division of our outline called The Road to Happiness. Then last week in our look at the two similitudes and our responsibility to the world, that was our second part of our general outline, responsibility to the world, we learned how we are to function as kingdom citizens in this corrupt and sin-darkened world as both spiritual light, or I should say salt, since that came first, spiritual salt to this earth and as light to this world. Now, as we move into the third division of our general outline called the reliability of scripture, we're going to discuss the foundation for the beatific Qualities and the foundation for functioning reliably in this world as salt and light. And that foundation is our only standard for righteous truth and practice. What is it? The Word of God. That is our foundation. For 30 years, Jesus had lived in obscurity, tucked away quietly up in Nazareth of Galilee with only a handful of people really even aware of his very, the very remarkable and miraculous events that surrounded the time of his birth. Then suddenly he had appeared from seemingly nowhere in the temple to cleanse it single-handedly. And of course doing that he greatly angered the religious establishment who had quite a lucrative operation going on there. So who was this character who appeared from nowhere? Nobody really knew who he was. Who was he? Everyone began to wonder. Investigation shortly found out that he was identifying himself with the strange wilderness prophet, John the Baptist. And like John, he was preaching repentance and the coming of the kingdom. Yet also like John, he refused to identify himself with any of the religious sects or the uh, scribal schools of his day. Instead, he was associating himself with the sick and the poor, with publicans, prostitutes, and other lawbreakers. Even the, the Baptist disciples came to him on one occasion to question him why his disciples did not honor the prescribed fast days. Furthermore, he seemed to support a disregard for the Sabbath laws because he allowed his disciples to pick heads of grain on the Sabbath, which was considered a no-no because it was considered a a work on the Sabbath. He allowed them not only to pick those grains of uh, wheat, but to eat them. And he also deliberately healed on the Sabbath day. So the question would be, did he honor the law? 
What did he think of the law? By the time of the Sermon on the Mount, it had become apparent that Jesus was not fitting into any of the common molds of the Jewish religious system of his day. So what were the people to understand about him? Where was he coming from? They knew that his teaching, teaching was certainly different from any that they had ever heard before because he spoke in his own authority, didn't he? He didn't go around quoting from this rabbi or this, uh, you know, Pharisee or whatever. His authority was his own. He also spoke with love and with grace, and he selflessly dispensed mercy on the needy of every kind. His words and his manner had a meekness about them that made what he said even all the more powerful because he was so meek. You know, he was just very much unlike the, their proud and uh, arrogant, selfish Pharisees and Sadducees and the other religious rulers. So people had to be wondering, what was his agenda? Was he another prophet like John? Or was he perhaps a false prophet? Was he a political revolutionary? Or was he perhaps indeed the Messiah who would lead them in a revolt against their Roman oppressors? Yet if so, why did he not align himself at least with the zealots who were against Rome, remember? But he didn't align himself with them. Were the scribes and the Pharisees right in despising him as a deceiver, as one who was unbelievably blasphemous in proclaiming his identity with God himself, even calling God his own father? Remember the John chapter 5 sermon? Do you remember that? Remember all the things that Jesus had said about himself in that amazing sermon? He said that uh, God had given all judgment over to him. He said that as the Father worketh, so I work. He said such things like uh, he has life in him just as God has life. He said Moses wrote of him. He said that the scriptures, you know, study the scriptures because they are what testify of me. He said all kinds of things, amazing claims to deity in that John chapter 5 sermon. So was he, you know, blasphemous like the scribes and Pharisees were saying? Was he an enemy of the law? Had he come to abolish Moses? Had he come to overthrow the Old Testament scriptures? What did he think of the law? Now, there was a prevailing idea among the Jewish people at that time that the Messiah would radically overturn the Mosaic law and establish his own standards. And they got this idea from their wrong interpretation of Jeremiah 31, 31. I didn't put that scripture up there. I should have. Jeremiah 31, 31. Because they thought that the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 spoke of, that, that Jeremiah spoke of, would completely annul the old covenant. They thought the new was going to annul the old and that they would start all over again with a completely new moral basis. Many Jews had obviously grown very weary of the hypocritical legalism of the scribes and the Pharisees, and so they actually hoped that this is exactly what the Messiah would do. And if Jesus was the Messiah, this is what they hoped he would do, that he would um, destroy the law and start all over again you know, with something new and fresh. Maybe he would bring the standards down to a level that they could actually reach. But, of course, we're going to find out as we continue in the sermon, which will begin actually next week, the main body of the sermon. 
taken us this long to get to the main body. But we'll find out as we go through this sermon that God's standards of righteousness are even higher than they had been interpreted from the Mosaic Law. And they're higher, of course, than the traditions of the elders that were invented by the religious rulers. Here's one example of how we see that it is definitely higher. You know, the Old Testament law, they interpreted to say, you know, thou shalt not covet. But what does Jesus say? I say unto you that whosoever even looketh on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in her heart. You see, even the scribes and the Pharisees and the uh, other religious rulers had realized that God's standards of holiness in the law, in the Old Testament, were impossible to keep. And that's precisely why they came up with so many man-made rules and regulations and traditions. Because even though their rules and their traditions were complex, we've talked about how silly and complex some of them were. Remember how a woman couldn't even look in a mirror because she might see a gray hair, pluck it, and that would be work really silly things and very complex and very numerous. There were actually 248 positive laws or do's and there were 600, 365 negative laws or don'ts. And so they were very complex, they were very numerous and they were often very detailed, yet they were within the limits of human accomplishment. It would be a whole lot easier for us not to look into a mirror on the Sabbath day, for example, than to not covet in our hearts. So you see, their rules and regulations were obtainable. They were within the limits of human accomplishment. They could be met by one's own power. And that's exactly what, you see, the scribes and Pharisees spent their whole lives doing, was meeting every one of these uh, rules and traditions that they had along the many years invented. However, their whole rabbinical traditional system had become, become something ex totally and extremely external, a works system of self-righteousness. In creating their own religious system of do's and don'ts, they had actually reduced God's standards of righteousness based on the Old Testament scriptures, and they had elevated their own imagined goodness. Now, I want you to understand one thing, and I'll probably reiterate this over and over again as we go through the sermon. There was no real conflict at all, or is no real conflict, with Christianity and biblical Judaism. They are totally in accord in their fundamentals. The conflict that we're going to be discussing was with the man-made traditions of the elders of rabbinical Judaism. Not biblical Judaism, but rabbinical Judaism. And the conflict was really with their wrong interpretations of the scripture. Conflict was not with the scripture, but with their wrong interpretations of it. Their brand of religion had become, as I said, wholly external. But as Christ is going to repeatedly point out in the sermon, God requires truth and such things as the beatific virtues in the inner man. The, the heart, the brand of righteous, their brand of righteousness was man-produced, and it was only partial. You see, they, they stressed only those parts of the law that suited their liking, while they ignored or nullified or altered other parts of the law. For example, when they take that adulterous woman before the Lord to have her stoned, of course they're trying to trip him up and test him, but where was the adulterer? They caught her in the very act, but who did they only bring? 
the woman, you know, that they picked and choose what they wanted to do. Same thing with the, the whole issue of divorce, and we'll get into that in a few weeks, actually. But thirdly, their righteousness came from a wrong motive, which was to promote their own reputation among men. They, they were all high and mighty about their appearance before others, and that's what motivated them to fulfill all these laws, is they wanted to look so pious and, and receive all the praise of, of, of men rather than to glorify God. Now, since all that the Lord would be further saying would be based on the Old Testament, he began his third section of the sermon with a prologue, and we find that prologue in our scripture passage for this morning's lesson. Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. And um, I have entitled this lesson on those verses, The Fulfiller. These are four very, very significant verses. Because in them, Jesus Christ affirmed to his followers the reliability of the scripture. And basically, he makes two major points. The first point he makes in verses 17 and 18 and that is that everything he did or said was in perfect harmony with the Pentateuch or the law. Now, the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, the um, books of Moses. So he says that everything he did or said was in perfect harmony with the Pentateuch. And with what else? The prophets, which would be the other 34 books of the Old Testament. So in other words, he's saying everything he did and said was in perfect accord with the entire Old Testament. The law, the books of Moses, and the prophets, which is the whole rest of the Old Testament. He says, actually, he came to fulfill it. All right, and then verses 19 and 20, <clears throat> he stated that much of his teaching and his works, however, would be in disharmony with the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. So what he's saying essentially in the first two verses is everything he is going to do and say is in total agreement with the Old Testament scriptures, but it will be in disharmony with what they have heard by their religious rulers. So in our look at these four verses, we're going to be looking at, first of all, in verse 17, the preeminence of the word. He says that he did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. We'll look at the permanence of the word in verse 18. It will, he says it will not pass away, but it will be fulfilled. And then in verse 19, we'll look at the pertinence or the relevance of the word. And in verse uh, 20, we'll look at the purpose of the word. Okay, so let's begin by looking at verse 17, the preeminence of the word. Look with me as I read verse 17. He says, right after he gave the similitudes about being salt and light, he says in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. All right, the Beatitudes and the similitudes actually together make up the introduction to the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. So everything we have looked at to this point has been the introduction to the sermon the Beatitudes and the Similitudes. The main body of the sermon actually begins in Matthew 5.17, what I just read to you. And the main body of the sermon will end in Matthew 7.12. Then from 7.13 to the end of the chapter, we have an extended invitation by the Lord for anyone who has not yet entered into his kingdom to enter in. He talks about two gates, 
two ways, what is it, two gates, two ways, two builders, something like that. But he, that's the, from 713 to the end of the chapter is a long invitation. But the main body begins in Matthew 5.17 and ends in Matthew 7.12, which is interesting because you will notice that where it begins, he speaks of the law and the prophets. Verse uh, 17 that I just read, it says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. And then you look at the last verse of the main body, 7.12. He says, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is what? the law and the prophets. This is what scholars call an inclusio. You see that word here? Inclusio. It means a repetition of words that begin and end a section and serve sort of as bookends to everything that comes in between. So in the main body of his sermon, he begins speaking of the law and prophets and he ends speaking of the law and the prophets, which is very interesting. The law and the prophets is found in the book of, or no, in the whole New Testament, that phrase is found 15 times, the Law and the Prophets, and it refers to what? The entire Old Testament scripture from Genesis to Malachi. The foundation of the law was given in the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And from this foundation, the prophets and the psalmists and the other inspired writers of scripture preached, they expounded on it, and they applied its truths. The law of God was divided into three parts. Moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. This is in your notes, so I won't go over everything real um, detailed, but the, the moral law, the foundational basis for the moral law was the Ten Commandments. The moral law laid out the righteous regulations of behavior for all men. <clears throat> it is a reflection of God's own character and it is eternal, and it is unchanging. The ceremonial law described all the rules and the ordinances to structure Israel's worship of Jehovah God. So the ceremonial law, which dealt with the sacrifices and the offerings and all the various rituals which were involved in both the tabernacle and later on the temple worship, was strictly for what nation? Israel. The ceremonial law, unlike the moral law, the moral law was for everybody, but the ceremonial law was strictly for Israel. The judicial law was the legislative law, also given to Moses by God, strictly for Israel. And it consisted of ordinances for the governing of his chosen nation and also for the punishment of offenders. The section of the scripture that Jesus referred to as the prophets, as I said, includes all the other 34 books of the Old Testament other than the books of the Pentateuch. The prophets primarily taught God's laws to the people, and they repeatedly attempted to get the Jewish people to obey those laws and to apply them to their own lives. The prophetical writings of the Old Testament also include many, many messianic prophecies or predictions about both the first and the second coming of, of the Messiah, the promised Messiah. Jesus came to make good. This is what he's saying here when he says he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He came to make good or to fulfill the prediction, all the predictions of the prophets by performing the various deeds and works that they predicted. It says in Luke 18.31, 
and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. A lot of them have already been accomplished. The ones that have not yet been accomplished will be accomplished at what time? His second coming and the events that will follow his second coming. So in a most profound statement, Christ said that he did not come to destroy any part of God's word. And remember, there is no New Testament at this point in time, so he's talking about Old Testament. Rather, he says, he came to be its fulfiller. He came to carry it out, the whole Old Testament. Uh, he came to, to carry it out to their fullest intent and to clarify God's original meaning in them, which is what he will do in the sermon. Now, how did he do this? Well, first of all, he did it by meeting all the demands. How did he fulfill the law? That's what I'm answering. How did he fulfill the law? He met it by, by meeting all the demands of the law and never breaking a single one of them. Not even a tiny little part of the law did he ever break. He fulfilled the moral law by his perfect, absolute righteousness. He was totally flawless in his absolute obedience to every single aspect of the moral law. It says in Galatians 4.4 that he was born under the law, and it says in Matthew 3.15 that he fulfilled all righteousness. He fulfilled the judicial law on the cross when he satisfied all the demands of the law for those who would believe on him, and he took their... their um, penalty for sin on himself. He fulfilled the ceremonial law as the perfect sacrifice, thereby ending the need for all other sacrifices, which they had merely prefigured. All the sacrifices of the Old Testament, all the offerings, etc., only prefigured him. When he came and died on the cross as the once-for-all sacrifice, he fulfilled that law and everything that they had pointed to. So symbolically, neither the ceremonial nor the judicial laws of Israel had any more significance after the Lord's death and resurrection. All that they had signified were pictures, or types we call them, pictures or types of the coming cleansing work of the Messiah. They ended because they were fulfilled in him. The pictures were no longer needed because the reality had come. The entire Old Testament, from Genesis 1-1 to Malachi 4-6, is all about who? It's all about Christ. He was its inspired author. It points to him, and it is fulfilled in him. So he is its author, he is its subject, and he is its fulfiller. In Romans 10-4... He is called the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. You see, Jesus Christ came to do for us what the law could never do. The law could point to righteousness, but it could not give righteousness. Christ came to give us righteousness, and he did that by meeting the law's standard of righteousness for us, and then imparting his righteousness to those of us who put our faith in him. And then we too, you see, in him, we can also fulfill 
the requirement of the law. Not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Look at Romans 8 for a minute. I don't, because I didn't write it out. I should have, but I didn't write it out. But I want you to look at it. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, therefore, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. Why? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in who? In us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So isn't that good news? We can fulfill the law because of being imputed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move on and look at verse 18, the permanence of the word. He says in verse 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. His next statement here begins with that emphatic word, verily. He said, for verily I say unto you, which indicated that what he was about to say was and still is extremely important. By the way, verily, that word occurs 31 times in Matthew's gospel, and John likes to use it twice. Whenever John uses it, he always says, verily, verily. And John uses it 25 times in his gospel. So Jesus goes on after he says, Verily I say unto you, and he tells his listeners that God's word is permanent. It will endure for how long? Forever. It is not to be modified. It is not to be rearranged. It is not to be added to or subtracted from. It is not to be corrected. It is not to be altered in even the tiniest detail. Not one jot or tittle. Now, a jot was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It was called the Yod, Y-O-D-H. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not really sure. If anybody speaks Hebrew and I'm wrong, correct me, please. But it looks something like an apostrophe. The smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet is a jot. And there are approximately, I know you want to, to know this, <laughs> There are approximately 66,420 yods in the Old Testament. Now, who in the world counted all those yods? I don't know. Somebody with nothing better to do. But <laughs> A tittle it was the smallest stroke of a letter. All right, so the yod is the, or the jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and a tittle is the smallest little stroke of the smallest letter. It's called a serif. And it's kind of like, the little stroke that makes the difference between a capital O and a capital Q. You know how you have to put that little down in the bottom of the circle to make it a capital Q instead of an O. That's a tittle. Obviously, then, since Jesus here is affirming the permanence of the scripture, he couldn't very well come to destroy it or annul it, right? If something is permanent, how can you annul it or destroy it? You can't. By his statement of Matthew 5.18, he was saying in no uncertain terms that all of God's law, the Old Testament, is fixed and unalterable until heaven and earth pass away, at which time all the law will be fulfilled. The scriptures will be completely fulfilled by Jesus Christ 
at the time of his second coming and the establishment of both his millennial and his eternal kingdoms. At that point in time, he will reverse the, um, the universal effects of the curse. He will complete God's redemptive program for this whole universe, for Israel and for the whole universe, and he will judge the, the wicked. Now, the Lord's words of Matthew 17, 5, 17, and 18 contain for us one of the most remarkable statements ever uttered. Not only did he claim that the entire Old Testament points to him, and that it is culminated and fulfilled in him, but he also put his absolute, his stamp of absolute confirmation on every single letter, every single word, every single letter, and even every single mark of the scripture. He never really made a more absolute witness to the inerrancy of the scripture than he does here. Now, he does speak another 64 times in the gospel accounts about the Old Testament being God's authoritative truth, such as when he says scripture cannot be broken. But he never states it so conclusively as when he even refers to its little jots and tittles, as he does here. Now, it's interesting, if you look over at Matthew 23, verse 35, Matthew 23, verse 35, if you compare the Lord's statements, statement of Matthew 5.18 with this statement that he makes in Matthew 23.35, it's really interesting because he used similar wording regarding the permanence of Scripture and it even outlasting heaven and earth. You see, when you read the other one, you might think, well, the word, it'll be... It'll be gone when heaven and earth pass away. Matthew 23, 35. He says, you know, until heaven and earth pass away. But look what he says. 24. 24. Sorry, tricked you. See if you're awake. <laughs> Matthew 24, 35. I'm sorry. And he, here he says... Um, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Isn't that interesting? So his word, he's actually equating his words with the rest of Scripture. But here, in case you thought maybe his word would pass away after the heaven and earth pass away, he's saying, no, even though heaven and earth will pass away, my words will never ever pass away. So throughout all eternity, are we going to have his word? Yes, it will never, ever pass away. But that was a clear statement of his deity right there, too. So over, you can go back to Matthew 5. Over and over again, the Lord Jesus confirmed the authority and the inspiration of the entire Old Testament. He did not merely say that the Old Testament contained truth, did he? Please have your ears open when you hear people teach the Bible. Pastors or whoever, radio stations or wherever you might hear the Bible being taught, keep your ears open. If you hear somebody say that the Bible contains truth, mm -mm -mm, that's a little red flag. It doesn't just contain truth, and it doesn't become truth for the one that it speaks to in some little spiritual, mystical way. No, it doesn't contain truth and doesn't uh, become truth. It is truth. It is truth to every single little jot and tittle. 
You know, this is something else I learned this week. Whenever the Lord Jesus used the term, it is written, when he would then quote the Old Testament scriptures, that it is written is used in the Greek perfect tense. And here's what it means, really, literally. It was written, it is written, and it will always be written. I love that. That's what it really, when he says it is written. It is, it was, and it always will be, just like himself. De- again, demonstrating the permanence of Scripture. It is more enduring than even the universe that we know. Can you think of anything more stable than the universe? Well, yeah, God <laughs> and his word. So what better thing for us to be doing than studying it? It's going to endure forever. What better thing could you be doing with your time than studying this word? You know, everything else is, is really superfluous. Is that the word? Trivial. Yeah, trivial. That's easier to say. <laughs> this, is the, this is the thing to, to devote your life to. The only thing that's going to endure forever are human souls and his word that we have now presently in this universe. The Lord Jesus repeatedly confirmed the truth of the Old Testament scriptures. He affirmed the account of the creation of Adam and Eve. He did. He talked about Adam and Eve from the very beginning. God made them male and female. He affirmed the worldwide Noahic flood. He even said that all perished other than Noah and his family. He confirmed the account of Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days. He testified to the truth of Abraham's justification by faith and his hope in the coming of the Messiah. He confirmed the record of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire and brimstone. He confirmed the record of Lot's wife. You know, these are things people scoff at, right? Jesus confirmed them. He said they're true. Uh, He confirmed the account of of Moses' call by God at the burning bush. He um, also confirmed the account of God sent manna from heaven in the wilderness and many, many other accounts as well. As a matter of fact, one-tenth of Christ's words in the New Testament were from the Old Testament. Of the 1,800 verses that contain quotes from Jesus in the New Testament, 180 of them, or one-tenth, are right out of the Old Testament. Now, a personal question. Where do you stand when it comes to believing every jot and tittle of the Old Testament? Do you know, and I'm sure you probably do, that there are a lot of people who think that they can call Jesus Lord and yet pick and choose what they will and what they will not believe from the Scripture, either the Old or the New Testament. They call Jesus Lord and yet they reject Adam and Eve and make them out to just be some mythical type of maybe telling us a spiritual story. But he spoke of them as male and female from the very beginning. They call Jesus Lord, and yet they reject the Genesis 7-day account of creation. They say that they believe Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead, and yet they distrust the Bible's account of a one-time worldwide flood. They make it into some local little flood, but Jesus said everybody perished. In reality, if you think about it logically, which you should, 
There are only three logical conclusions that you can come to regarding Christ's testimony of the scripture. Number one, there are no errors in the original manuscripts, and Jesus spoke the truth. He is truth, and therefore he can only speak truth. Secondly, there are errors in the Bible. Perhaps there, it wasn't really a seven-day creation week, or maybe, and it's, it's an exaggeration, about the Tower of Babel, or Jonah being swallow, swallowed by a whale, or uh, Balaam's donkey speaking to him. Maybe, you know, maybe there are errors, but Jesus just didn't know about them. Now you have a little problem if you say that, because then Jesus isn't God, if he didn't know about the errors. All right, the third choice you have is that there are errors and Jesus did know about them, but he purposely deceived us. And there again, you have a problem. So the only real choice you have if you claim that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and that he is the second person of the Godhead is that the Bible is true because he said it was right down to every little jot and tittle. So a belief in the deity of Jesus Christ demands a belief in the reliability and the inspiration of of the entire scripture. The Lord Jesus said that he himself is the fulfiller of the Old Testament. The greatest and the most far-reaching, even on into eternity, the greatest discovery that anyone can ever make is to discover the truth of that statement, that Jesus Christ is the fulfiller of the scripture. When that occurs to you, 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 you have it all. You do. You have it all. And your life will just fall right into line because when you realize that, you're going to want to obey him, aren't you? So let's review how Christ fulfilled or yet will fulfill the law and the prophets. Number one, he fulfilled the law by his death on the cross and his satisfaction of the demands of the law. He fulfilled the law by perfectly keeping every one of its commandments. Third, he also precisely fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the birth, the life, the works, the miracles, the parables, the character, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Messiah. Fourth, in his followers, he fulfills the law by means of the Holy Spirit working in us. And last, he also fulfilled all the Old Testament type prophecies. Now, a type if you've been with us for any length of time, you know I talk a lot about types, but a type prophecy refers to an event, a person, or a thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows something or someone. For example, uh, an event would be the Passover, which foreshadowed Jesus Christ. And a, a person would be Isaac, Isaac, who prefigured, was a picture in type of the Lord Jesus Christ when Abraham took him up to um, offer him on the altar there on Mount Moriah. And a thing would be, for example, the ark of Noah. Noah's ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. And I you know, would love to get into all that, but we don't have... Um, we don't have... Yeah, that would be another lesson. That would be a whole lot of other lessons. I do have in your notes a Joseph... The 11th son of Jacob is one of the most beautiful character types that we have of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can read what I have in there and how he does show Jesus Christ in so many different aspects of his life. But I won't go over that since it's in your notes. But let me just give you some um, types of Christ that are listed in this book by Harold Wilmington. Book of Bible lists. 
I refer to this all the time. That's why I've got pages falling out of it. This is where I get my numbers, you know, what they represent and everything. It's a great little uh, tool. All right, types of Christ. We have Adam, his headship over a new creation. Noah is a type or a picture of Christ in his saving life. Abraham, his fatherhood. Melchizedek, Christ's priestly ministry. Isaac, his death, as I just talked about. Uh, he was the only begotten son of his, you know, the beloved son of his father. Joseph, most perfect type of Christ in the entire Old Testament because he was hated without a cause. He was ridiculed. He was uh, plotted against by his own brothers. He was stripped of his robe. He was sold for silver. He was lied about. He was placed in captivity. He was uh, rejected by his own brothers. He was unrecognized by his own. But in the end, they did recognize who he was. He was the giver of life and on and on. Then Moses predicted uh, or is a type picture of Christ in his prophetical ministry. Joshua in his victorious life. David in his kingly ministry. Solomon in his wisdom. Elijah in his forerunner, because Elijah is a picture of who? John the Baptist. Elisha is a type of Christ's miracles. He actually resurrected the dead as well. Jonah is a picture of Christ's resurrection. Jeremiah is a picture of his sorrows, that he's a man of sorrows. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Daniel is a picture of his acceptance by the Father. You know, Daniel is the only one in the Old Testament that there's not one negative thing ever said about him. Ezekiel pictures the Lord's parables. Ezra pictures his zeal for the scriptures. And Jeremiah predicts his um, zeal for the holy city. And on and on. And that's just to name some character types. We have all kinds of other types of Christ in the Old Testament. He fulfilled every one of them. Prophecy regarding Christ is found throughout the Psalms, for example. Uh, Psalm 22, if you've never read that, you need to read Psalm 22, is the most obvious. But the other Psalms are also full of words concerning Jesus Christ. And then there is that fantastic, predictive account of the Lord's suffering found in Isaiah chapter 53. From Genesis to Malachi... There are prophecies regarding the promised seed of the woman. Remember, it all begins in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman, the promised Messiah. Um, So we find predictions about his work, what he would teach, his words, his resurrection was actually foretold. Um, The scriptures are all full of uh, prophetic information about the millennial kingdom that would be established at his second coming. There are prophecies that stated the Messiah would bring salvation, not just to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. There are prophecies which predict Israel's rejection of Christ and her dispersion to the nations of the world and even predict her eventual return to the land, as we saw in 1948, and even her eventual recognition and acceptance of Jesus Christ. You know, one day Israel will look upon him whom... She has pierced and she will mourn for him as their only son. Just like Joseph's brothers finally bowed before him and recognized and knew that he was indeed the giver of life, the, you know, the bread of life giver. That's what will happen one day. Israel, at the end of the um, tribulation, after she goes through the tribulation, she will nationally recognize him. 
Uh, verification of Christ's identity is more than abundantly provided in the Old Testament scriptures for the one who is willing to search the scriptures. The best advice is what I just had up there. Best advice really comes from Jesus himself who said, search the scriptures for they are they which testify of me. As the resurrected, unrecognized Jesus Christ was walking down the Emmaus Road with two of his, his uh, disciples, one of my favorite places to have been if I could have ever been there as a little fly on the wall, or not on the wall, but maybe on their shoulder, I would have loved to have heard what Jesus taught those two disciples. They didn't know who he was, but he opened up the scriptures, and it says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wow. I would have loved to have heard that sermon. It must have taken hours and hours and hours and hours for him to expound to them everything in the scripture about himself because there is so much. The divinely inspired mosaic books of Leviticus and Numbers. A lot of times people like to skip over those books because they really sound pretty boring when you just look at them superficially. But... They are uh, relevant for today because they are full of pictures of Christ. The various offerings and sacrifices, the tabernacle with all of its uh, furnishings. I should be putting up these different pictures. All of them, everything about the tabernacle, here it is, speaks of Jesus Christ and was finally and fully um, accomplished by Christ. He's not only the temple. But he is the high priest. He is the once for all sacrificed. His physical body was the veil. He is the altar. He is the lamb. He is the light. He is the labor. He is the one door. He is the eternal bread of life. He is the mercy seat. <laughs> Even the colors that they had to use for the curtains speak of him. Red for the blood. Purple for royalty, etc., etc. Everything about it speaks of Jesus Christ. He presented his own blood in heaven so that all of the ceremonial law is now fulfilled. I'm just going to put these up because i got to go on teaching, but this is another picture of Christ. You know, when Moses smote the rock and water came out of it, that speaks of Jesus being smitten. You know, we have the brazen serpent lifted up in the wilderness as a picture of Christ. All of the feast days of Israel are pictures of Christ in his life. And, oh, it's just oh, fascinating study. And, of course, we have the Passover as a picture of Christ. Um, this one I'm just going to leave up so you can look at it because I don't have time to talk about it, but we discussed this in our Genesis study, and it's amazing how even Israel is a picture of Jesus Christ, but I have to go on because we're running out of time. Let's look at verse 19, the pertinence of the word. He said, Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least command, these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here we have the pertinence or the relevance of the word. Following his statement that he did not come to destroy or diminish the law, but to fulfill it, here he goes on to <clears throat> instruct his followers or kingdom citizens that neither are we to diminish or destroy or disobey the law. In other words, he told them that the Old Testament was pertinent for them, meaning us. It's pertinent for us as well. We are not to break or disregard even one of the least of God's moral commandments, and especially are we not to lead others to break or disregard any of them. 
The New Testament writers made it abundantly clear that it is the Christian's obligation to obey God's moral law. Remember, we don't have the ceremonial laws and we don't have the judicial laws, but we are to obey the moral laws. The moral law did not end at the time of Christ's first coming, but it was unconditionally confirmed by the Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. Someone now perhaps might question the statement that we believers are under any aspect of the law. You might say, well, why are we still under the moral law when it says in Romans 6.14 that we are not under the law, but we are under what? Grace. You might question that. However, in Romans 6.15, Paul went on to write, he said, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid, which is me yinita. In the Greek, it's the strongest thing he could say. God forbid, no, 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 no. Paul harmonized law and grace when he said of himself that he was now without law to God, but under the law to Christ. And we're going to see in the sermon that under the law of Christ is even higher than the Old Testament law to God, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Christ's law is even higher, more higher, even though we're under grace. When we are truly in Christ, when we are born again, we are to be anything but lawless. Absolutely, we are not to be lawless. We are no longer under the penalty and the curses of the law because Jesus Christ paid the penalty in full for us. But that does not mean that we are free from the law's requirements of of righteousness. But where is that law written? It's now written in our hearts, isn't it? And we want to obey it, and we have the power to obey it because of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> in Matthew 5:19, the Lord said that when we attempt to disobey even the least of the commandments of the moral law, to even the slightest degree, we are being unchristlike to that degree. Now, we will not, of course, lose our salvation because you notice he says we'll be in the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at that. He says, whosoever therefore shall break one of the least, these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So he'll be least, but he'll still be there, won't he? He isn't losing his salvation just because he disobeys some of the moral law or teaches others to disobey them. But his rewards for his uh, works for Christ will be forfeited. A special warning is given to those who teach others this disobedience. Now, all of us teach in one form or another. We teach, most importantly, I think, we teach by our example, which causes those around us to either be more obedient or more disobedient. And we teach by our words. I think we teach a lot of times more by our actions than we do by our words. If we speak respectfully and submissively and lovingly when it comes to discussion of God's word, we're teaching others to do the same. Or when we teach by example and our children or our grandchildren or even those around us see our reverence for the word, they see us make time to come to a ladies' Bible study, to go to church on a weekly basis, when they see us make this a priority in our lives, when they see us sit down and actually open up our homework in front of our children or grandchildren, and when they see that, we are teaching them our own reverence for this book, and they learn by our example. 
<clears throat> so we can do a lot of teaching even if without speaking. But igno even ignoring the word of God is a manner of teaching, isn't it? If you, if you ignore this word and say, you know, you might say that you reverence it, but you, nobody ever sees you carrying it or nobody ever sees you studying it or reading it, you're actually, t that's teaching those around you what you really think of it. Every believer may not have the gift of teaching, but nonetheless, every believer is to teach the right attitude to have regarding this book. And that's what he's talking about here in this verse. Remember that according to God, greatness in his kingdom is not based on things like um, reputation, talents, fruitfulness, or even spiritual gifts. Instead, greatness in his kingdom <clears throat> is based on the believer's obedience to scripture, to the whole of scripture, his attitude toward the scripture, his, how he teaches others his attitude toward the scripture. And elsewhere in scripture, we're told another requirement for greatness in God's kingdom is servanthood. And another place we are told humility. So if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, three requirements. Be humble, be obedient. Well, I probably should put that first. Be obedient to God's word. Show reverence and respect for it. And do it and teach others to do it, to obey it. Be servant, a servant. The greatest in the kingdom of God is the servant of all. And be humble. And then you will be considered one of the greatest in, in heaven. And I hope that all of us will be there as the greatest. <laughs> all right, the purpose of the word, word, and I'll close with this. Let's look at verse 20. He says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is a key verse for the whole rest of the sermon, and we'll keep going back to it over and over again. The purpose of the law was not to tell man what he had to do to make himself acceptable to God, as the Pharisees and the scribes interpreted it, nor was it to show man how good he already was. The purpose of the law and the prophets was to show man how totally sinful and helpless he is without God. Remember, this is the first step in this whole sermon, the first step in the Beatitudes. Salvation begins with being what? Poor in spirit, which means that we must realize our own inadequacies and our own sinful state before a holy, righteous God. That's where it all begins, when we realize there's nothing we can do to be righteous or to attain the kingdom of heaven. We're totally helpless and hopeless apart from him. So the Old Testament law was to show us that. It was actually our schoolmaster to help bring us to Christ. The religious leaders of, of uh, the Lord's time thought and taught that God was only concerned with the external observance of the law. They did not think that it mattered to God what was going on in their minds as long as they didn't carry through with what was going on in their minds, in their external actions. They were very strict, for example, in abstaining from <clears throat> such sins as adultery. Well, they had a way around that, because they would divorce and all, but we'll get to that. But they, they would abstain from the big sins like adultery, theft, murder, idolatry. But they made very little of their inner sins of covetousness, hatred, 
lust, anger, and cold-heartedness toward God. They may have looked really great on the outside of their cups, but inwardly, what did Jesus say of them? They were filthy because they were full of all kinds of extortion and excess. But Jesus said that unless an individual's righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, he will in no case enter into the heaven, the kingdom of heaven. The Christian's righteousness flows from a heart of love and faith for the prince of righteousness, whereas Pharisaic righteousness issues from an unregenerate heart, which is evil and self-centered and antagonistic toward the prince of righteousness. As we've already seen in our study, and we will continue to see, they get even more and more antagonistic against him. The Christian's righteousness is the result of being a partaker of the divine nature. But Pharisaic righteousness is totally human. The believer's shortcomings with regard to righteousness are covered by the infinite merits of our Savior. But the shortcomings of Pharisaic righteousness are not covered And therefore, they have nothing at all to commend them to God. The believer's righteousness secures for him a home in heaven. But Pharisaic righteousness excludes them from the kingdom of heaven. So, it is very, very, very serious to only be religious and not to be righteous. Is this a problem prevalent in our society today? Oh, yes. Many, many, many people who are religious, but they do not have a righteous, personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of them are self-deceived. Just because they know who he is and they have the head knowledge, they do not understand that that has to be internalized, that it has to be a matter of the heart. And the best way to do that is just to ask him to come in. He knocks at your heart, and he just wants that simple invitation. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and save me. And he will. But please, please, I beseech you, make sure that you truly are righteous and not just religious. Because even in this room, somebody may be in that situation. I would not doubt it. If you have even this much of a doubt, please come and see me afterward. There's nothing I would rather do than talk to you about your eternal salvation and your eternal destiny in heaven. Thank you for your patience. I probably did go over. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven and that we can indeed rest not only our hearts in that truth, but our eternal souls. Father, we know your word has even been magnified above your very name. So how very important it is for us. Thank you, Lord, that the word from Genesis to Revelation speaks of its author, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone became man and lived a perfect life so that we might be imputed his righteousness and be made free from the penalty of the law forever and ever. How we love you, Jesus, and how we magnify your precious, blessed name. For it is in your name that we pray. Amen.